Broadcasting from Vic Fontaine's recording studio. This is Politrex. The time directive. The Declaration of Human Rights. The United Federation of Planets. The United Nations. World War II. The Dominion Federation War. The Art of War. The Teachings of Sirach. Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex. We're so happy that you've warped in to see us in your differing uh, spaceships and whatever else that you find yourself being able to achieve warp speed in. It's a wonderful time to be listening to podcasts as it is now officially summer where I am. And if you're wondering who I am, my name is Barry DeFord and I'm one of the co-hosts of this lovely here show. And with me as always is my often imitated, never replicated, Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing Shashank? Namaste, Homo sapiens. I am good. I'm here in my Romulan science vessel because I'm trying to figure out if teleportation really works or is it just all super warpy techniquey techno babble that people should not care about but are here to listen to some political commentary. So let's get into the show. I'm yeah. here. Yay. Yeah, I was going to ask though, if you're in a Romulan science vessel, are you talking to members of the Federation through a tiny little warp corridor thing? Um, uh, to them in the Delta Quadrant. That's that's my question. Is is that happening? Have you spoken with Janeway and how's she doing? Dude, I'll answer your question, but can you hear that squeaking noise? Yeah, a little bit. That's okay. That's okay. Everybody, okay. Um, just so you know, there there's a dog also in the uh, in the room. In, not in my room, but uh, uh, in Shashank's room. So uh, yeah, just make a note of that. Yeah, uh, General Zod, he usually does crazy insane stuff uh when he's not eating or sleeping or pooping and peeing around the house and right now he's chewing on one of his squeaky toys like especially after I expressly told him that we need to be quiet because we haven't entertained our listeners in a while and we really need to be silent but of course zod listens to no one so here we go uh, but to answer your question uh, <laughs> to answer your question yes i have spoken to janeway i hear she's very proud of a certain someone in the 6th Congressional District of New York, who's a 28-year-old bartender who was outspent 118 to 1 or 108 to 1 and ended up winning a primary anyway. That is obscurely delightful. Speaking of winning, I've, I won the school year. Of course, some of you may know I am a school teacher, and if you want to know more about that, you can listen to one of our back catalog episodes where we speak to the illustrious Miss Amy Nelson about teaching and trek. But uh, school's out for me now, and I know school's been out for how long in the States? Like a month already? Yeah, but for me, it's when busy time kicks in, and I'll get into that a little bit more. But yes, we've been out since the 15th of June, I want to say. Anyway, the, the uh, reference I was making is... Actually, quite political. There is a person named Alexandria Oscario Cortez. Maybe I'm hoping I say I say her name right. Uh, she's from a congressional district in New York, who was a a tiny what she uh, classifies herself as as a democratic socialist organizer, who's a bartender, and she started a little congressional campaign to go to Congress. But she was running against the fourth ranking Democrat in the country, who raised 
millions, tens of millions of dollars for his campaign. And she ran on maybe a couple of thousand and a few supporters, but she actually ended up winning the primary. That's amazing. And good job. I need to learn more about this person. She's you say she's a she's a socialist or a democratic socialist. She calls herself a democratic socialist. She's one of the organizers for Bernie. And the reason why I make a Star Trek reference about her is because she tweeted recently that, hey, the secret's out. I'm actually Captain Catherine Janeway from the USS Voyager. That is also very cool, and it's something I'm going to need to learn about. So the good part is, is by the time this podcast drops, I will know everything about this person and will be following her on Twitter. That's, uh, I, I'm just glad I can bring that news to our listeners around the world. That is so cool. Also, if you are a person who enjoys the social media, speaking of Twitter, uh, Shashank, where can people find us? People can find us on at Polytrex, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S, and that's our same name on Facebook. It's a pretty unique name, so I'm glad we actually got to keep it. But yes, you can find us there. You can find me on at gutter underscore hero, G-U-T-T-R underscore H-E-R-O. I'm happy we can, the best conversation starter would be, hey, what is a gutter hero? Are you a king of garbage? What is gutter? And that would be a great conversation starter. Where can people find you personally, Barry? Well, you can find me at B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D, Bjorn de Fjord. I'm also, you can also find me just under my title name, just BDEF, B-D-E-F. And uh, yeah, I'm usually posting about uh, stuff on the left or sci-fi. That's usually my my two my two trick pony sort of things. But uh, if you do also want to go a little more old-fashioned in getting in touch with us, you can always call in to our voicemail messaging service for the Tricorder Transmissions at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. So as Polytrex, we're actually part of a larger conglomerate, a group of, of other podcasters who are like-minded. We're part of the Tie Quarter Transmissions Podcast Network, and we have wonderful shows like Weekly Trek, uh, Reading Trek, Disco Trek, Drawing Trek, Trek Ranks, Trek Profiles, and um, you'll notice a bit of a uh, a bit of a theme. We are very much a Star Trek centric podcast network we also have cool stuff on our patreon so if you check out our website at the tricorder transmissions.com you can also find us you can also support us on patreon and we've got cool swag and we've got uh, meetups where you can actually talk to some of the hosts candidly if you're heading to stlv we've got swag so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on so yeah with that yeah here we are we're, we're in full-blown summer mode just a few weeks away from Star Trek Las Vegas, of which both Shashank and I will be joining. So if you're going, you can definitely come and say hello to us. But uh, you should be celebrating um, the uh, the 4th of July tomorrow, aren't you, Shashank? What's, uh, what is that going to look like for you? My 4th of July is going to be me sitting down in front of the TV and watching the most American of movie series, Die Hard. Ooh, that's usually more of a Christmas thing for me. Right. It, it qualifies as both to me. I argue often that Die Hard is the most American premise because much like America, which should never have existed because the idea is so crazy. The premise of this movie is so crazy. A guy with nothing, not even shoes on his feet, manages to defeat an entire skyscraper full of terrorists. That is, And that is just movie one. There are six, six, five movies in this thing that are coming out of the sixth one. But yes, tomorrow it'll be me... Do, eating some vegan American variation of a pizza, which is also one of the most American of foods, ironically, and uh, watching Die Hard. That's going to be my 4th of July, man. 
That sounds pretty cool. Um, and, and yeah, as a Indian living in America, have you done anything like super American for the 4th of July in the past? Every year, one of my friends invites me to a cookout. Uh, and it's not a traditional cookout because he's very much uh, a man of the earth, if, if uh, that's an applicable term. He likes making a bonfire in his backyard. And he, he really roasts his meat over that bonfire. And he makes me vegan food when I go. And everybody just gets drunk and they start telling stories. He's also an ex-military person. So he tells us some of those stories. It's it's just a fun time all around. So that's the most American thing I've done on 4th of July is attend some of those cookouts where people just sit and talk about America. That's awesome. That sounds like super fun. So I... Uh, if I understand this correctly, we recently had Canada Day, isn't that right? Yes. July the 1st is our big day, and usually it's met by some, you know, fireworks. It's it's very similar to the 4th of July. Usually people are barbecuing or they're hanging out in the parks and, and just doing stuff. My lovely fiancé ended up going on a very long 11-hour hike in the Canadian Rockies. She went up a place called Lightning Ridge, and yep. It's known for its lightning. And she went during a pretty bad rainstorm where there could have been lightning. So I was at home getting a number of uh, a number of things finished up and, and stuff like that. My, my work as a teacher is not completely done in the summer, so I was stuck at home doing some work and uh, basically just hoping uh, she didn't get struck by lightning. So I don't know. It was definitely kind of a rainy Canada day, so I didn't do too much. But my most notable thing that I did was I used to work at a historical park in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, called Fort Edmonton Park, and I was on 1885 Street. What we would do as historical interpreters, we'd dress up and get to walk around and be people from the 19th century, and so, of course, there wouldn't have been a Canada Day like we would have seen it today, but there still was Canada Day. It was called Dominion Day at the time, and so there'd be all these British flags flying everywhere, and people singing God Save the Queen, and there'd be debates, and there'd be parades, and all this sort of stuff. So those were my days, uh, wandering around in old-timey garb, uh, singing God Save the Queen with a number of my dear friends, and getting paid to do it. One of the interesting things about Canada that I often forget is that you actually bow your allegiance to the Queen. Yes. It's a... It's something that I, for some reason, often forget. But I have some couple of, uh, because it was Canada Day and I was excited, probably more excited than you were, to ask you a bunch of questions about Canada. I'll try to limit them to three. But tell me this, if Canada was a Star Trek organization or empire, which one do you think it would be and why? Oh, my goodness. Um, Probably the brain. We'd be the brain. We're really hard to pin down. We probably, inside of our uniforms are super cold and people don't understand how we can handle the cold. And uh, don't mess with us because one shot will destroy the Defiant. Oh, very scary. But I would be actually scared if you guys didn't have Mounties. So uh, there you go. Anyway, <laughs> uh, my second question is, Who's the most Trekkie Canadian? And William Shatner doesn't count. Well, I would actually argue that the most Trekkie Canadian is the opposition leader currently in the Canadian government. Uh, his name is Andrew Shear. He's a conservative. So he and I don't politically see eye to eye whatsoever. But he dressed up last year in a full engineering, like like TNG engineering uniform, complete with a PADD as well. Like he had a, like a working pad and like in front of his house handing out candy, complete in an engineering uniform. So it's that usual thing of like, I don't agree with him politically whatsoever. 
or me, probably socially either on a lot of things. But you know what? He and I would have something to talk about because he's a Trek fan just like me. And so there's our common ground. What is, and this is my final question, I promise. What is the most Trekkie thing that Canada did in the last century? And legalizing marijuana does not count, even though that's pretty sweet. Well, it would actually be something really cool in my own province. We have a city or town, I guess, called Vulcan, Alberta. Now, it was named Vulcan long before Gene Roddenberry came up with his version of Vulcans. But it had like Vulcan, Alberta has just hook, line and sinker taken its Star Trek thing. It's got a uh, sort of a slight variation of the Enterprise A in the center of town. It's got a lot of cool stuff, just, you know, Star trek things. There's murals and crosswalks and stuff all kind of trekked out. And they have a little convention that they've had some famous Star Trek uh, uh, actors and writers and celebrities come and visit. And a couple of my friends who are also Albertan, who are also Star Trek fans, who I met at uh, STLV last year, they go down to Vulcan. In fact, I understand, I think they're actually going to be heading through Vulcan to make it to Vegas this year. So Art Shea, if you're listening, happy retirement and we'll see you in Vegas. But um, yeah, no, I would say that's the most Trekkie thing. Canada literally just turned an entire town into a Star Trek homage. <laughs> Uh, which I think is pretty sweet. For those of you who are interested, uh, there is an actual town in Illinois called Metropolis, and they have a statue of Superman, and they actually have a Superman festival. I know this is not Trek-related, but every time somebody speaks of a certain place that connects to a franchise, I think of Metropolis, Illinois. Anyway, that was a lot of uh, deep diving into our Trek and our Allegiance side of things. Let's get to what you guys are really here for, the news. Welcome back, everybody. We are now full bore into the news. And this is, a, I, don't, I don't know, it's almost a, a themed news segment. Wouldn't you say there, Shashank? We, we're, we're bringing up the kids this time. We're talking lots about kids. What's your, what's your kid's story? Yeah, we're not only actually talking about kids. We're talking about kids being stuck in places they don't want to be stuck in. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all trapped. All of the kids we're going to talk about are trapped. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you if you should I wish we could have a timestamp so people could know if they don't want to listen to the sad and depressing news segment they can skip directly to the main topic but we'll try to make some light of it yeah. that's our job here but uh, yeah the first one is uh, last we spoke to you kids were being being put in cages and now when we are speaking to you kids are not being put in cages anymore so that's a woo maybe maybe yes I, I I don't know if that should be celebrated or. We should just be embarrassed that that actually happened. But yes, Trump lifted the immigrants separating from their children rule. And now everybody will be tried together for coming into the country. And they're essentially going back to what used to be the status quo. And kids are not going to be put in cages anymore. Yeah. And I mean, again, I'm I'm always hesitant to, to be fully fully frustrated with just the United States for its treatment of children who come to the country from overseas because Canada doesn't have a very stellar record. In fact, Canada also uh, detains children separately from their parents in some cases. The conditions are arguably better, but 
they still exist. They're still a thing and they're still a problem. But yeah, um, Shashank and I were talking beforehand and he kind of laid out sort of the exact particulars of it all. I think also that that sort of illuminates my ignorance on some of the of the issues. And there's a lot of sort of rage posting that takes place, especially among my my Twitter and Facebook group of friends on the whole thing. But I think I think the long and short of it is, is that I'm happy that that parents and children are being put back together again. I don't know what the infrastructure of that looks like. I feel very much like this is sort of like, so the Bajorans are getting some concessions, but the Cardassians are still very much in control. Wouldn't you say that, Shashank? Oh, yeah. It's like um, making people feel like they're actually getting something good, like the the administration is actually doing something. This is actually an age-old tactic where they do something super evil, and then they go back to not super evil. And we feel like, oh, yeah, yay, this is this is great. That's a good thing. Like, I'm sure that's how Fox News spun it. It's like, good news for immigrants, this age-old rule that put kids in cages is now abandoned, when the truth is that the administrations before Trump actually did not put kids in cages. What they did was they used to try both immigrant parents and children together, and they'd actually get a court hearing. And depending on how that court hearing went, they would either get asylum or they'd be charged with a misdemeanor and they would just go back to wherever they came from. But this administration, one person in particular, Stephen Miller, actually bragged to the New York Times saying, I am the genius who came up with this. Let's separate kids from their parents. What else? What is more harsh that could deter a parent from coming here or bringing a family here? Let's take their kids away. This is my idea. And they called it the no tolerance policy. So, yeah, there is some context in there that needs to be refilled. But this idea is uh, now full blown. The effects have been seen. People have gone crazy around the country. There was a series of rallies held called the Families Belong Together Rally. And now I'm just happy that kids are not being put in cages. But that's one step of a thousand mile journey. Yeah, I'm going to go on record and say that Stephen Miller is probably my least favorite person in this hemisphere, probably. Um, yeah, he, he's 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 pretty awful. I've, I've learned a lot about him, and uh, it's interesting because, you know, he's, he's a, yeah. That's all I want to say for now, because <laughs> I'll, I'll get I'll start barking and I'll be worse than I'll be worse than than either of our, our respective dogs um, freaking out about it. So I'm just going to I'm just going to go on record to say that he is not my favorite person in the world in a in a real big way. And I was I, while you were talking, I was actually like, what Star Trek villain could I equate him to? No, I like every Star Trek villain 200 times more. Every single, you name a devious and terrible Star Trek villain, and I will tell you why I like them more than Stephen Miller. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to go there, because I'm pretty sure that actually is the result of what you will say, is every, even if I compare him to Khan, you'll go, well, Khan, you know, there's some charm there. So, but getting back to the actual news of it, I really think this administration is actually turning into the Cardassian Empire right before our eyes. They're doing it in plain sight. Like they went from taking one rule, which is already pretty ridiculous, and they turned it to an 11. And Stephen Miller and Kirsten Nielsen, who is another executive in the Trump administration, had the gall, the gall, after implementing this rule, to actually go to a Mexican restaurant and 
try to order food and what happened in the restaurant is remarkable everybody in the restaurant started yelling shame 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 and these people were made to walk out of the restaurant which i thought was pretty incredible i'm i'm really happy that 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 the american people are being heard i mean i've mentioned this before i've got friends who are on several different sides of the political spectrum um former and current card carrying members of both of the national uh, mainstream parties of the united states i've got friends who are communists i've got friends who are anarchists and i really feel like if all of them were in one restaurant together at this point they would all be saying the exact same thing and and telling those people to get out of that restaurant and i'm i'm yeah I, I feel like that's that's a kind of a no-brainer but also yeah good good i'm glad that i'm glad that these people aren't made to feel comfortable and that's really important the other the other element of that that i would say is this sort of reminds me of of picard's behavior during star trek insurrection where he strips himself of his rank right he he puts he puts the four pips down onto the table and takes a good long hard look at what he's being asked to do and he realizes that he must must say no to the orders that he is being given due to the type of person he is due to the respect that he has for himself and for what he feels he upholds and for the crew that he is a part of and I would say that any official who is operating in this needs to take a good hard look at whatever rank they find themselves in an office or, or even just as a, a one of these agents and really take a long hard look at what they're doing and, and what the right thing to do would be in this case. We could get on the topic of illegal immigration and da 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 and you probably get into my kooky ideas on borders, but to be honest, this is a no-brainer. People should not be treated like animals. People should not be forced um, into these terrible situations because that's where they're coming from. Usually, they're coming from from places where there's no hope, uh, places where there's there's poverty, places that you know. If you really think about it economically, these are non-Western countries that are that Western countries are benefiting off of. The capital that comes out of those countries goes to these Western countries. So, um, if they show up at your doorstep, that's why because. Do you like the, the cheap things you're getting? Um, they made it. They made that. And now they're here. So, yeah, we got to figure that out. Anyways, on to our, our, our next kid situation. I, I've taken kids on field trips before, and I've often sort of looked at a situation where I've been like, ooh, that could have went poorly. And some of my favorite episodes is when Starfleet officers have to take care of a number of kids, right? I'm, I'm always, uh, I always think of like disaster where Captain Picard has to take care of those kids in the turbo lift and, and you know, they're singing Frere Jaca and he's he's not fully certain they're gonna survive, you can tell, but like he's gotta keep their their heads about them and stuff like that. And so yeah, in Thailand, a group of uh, soccer player kids between the ages of like eleven and thirteen decided to go on a little caving adventure with their coach. And then the cave flooded, and now they're stuck in that cave for an indefinite period of time. We're thinking, like, they're saying, like, probably September, maybe October is when the water will recede enough for these kids to get out of here. So that's sort of an untenable situation. And now they're stuck for just... But thankfully, they're alive. Like, that's my big thing, is, like, these divers, these uh, these divers, like, pop their heads out of the water, and they're filming it, and they're like, oh, good, you're all alive. But then it's also now, like, guess what, kids? Now you have to learn how to be cave scuba divers, and your life depends on it. So it sort of reminds me of like 
these moments where Starfleet officers are in these horrible situations where they got to get a bunch of stuff figured out. You know, the ship's coming apart. The uh, the icy grip of space is just like you know whatever the thickness of the hull is away from from you know just just instant death, and you know these Starfleet officers now also have to deal with like you know kids who have kid personalities and kid understandings of things and like if they're young enough i mean everything is tragedy it's scary it's horrible and so now now they're like okay guys let's you know climb this turbo lift and hope we don't get killed kind of thing and it's it sort of reminds me of the same thing where these divers like pop up and they're like oh you're all alive okay so we're gonna rescue you but it's gonna be really really hard you know and and yeah so i don't know it just it feels like sort of a star trek situation so incidents like this, people being stuck in places, tends to happen a lot in third world nations. When I was a child, uh, when I was eight years old, one of my cousins, I, for, for all intents and purposes, for me, my brother, fell down a running sewer drain. We were uh, kids playing. It was uh, during Diwali time. For those of those who, of you who don't know, Diwali is a Hindu festival near which people burst fireworks. And uh, so my uh, my cousin and our friends they set up this elaborate firework installation to see something blow up, and they they lit the the spark, and then they ran away from it. Uh, but they did not notice that a few feet away, there is a sewer drain open. And a sewer drain was open because the person who had opened that up clearly had not done his job well and not had closed and locked that thing down. So it was uh, it was not open as in the lid was open, but the, the, the lid of it was loose enough to where if you stepped on it, you would fall through. And yep, my cousin just fell through it. And the way his life was saved that day is... A friend of mine who was probably three or four years older than us had the presence of mind to run toward my cousin as he was being swept away by that sewer water as if he was stuck in an ocean. And this is like almost a 12 by 12 hole. So it's really not that big anyway. He put his hand down, grabbed my cousin's head by tuftfuls of hair and pulled him up like he was... He was some piece of treasure in the ground that Indiana Jones was pulling out and he just grabbed him up like this. And that's the only reason why my cousin survived that day. Anyway, the point of the story is this happens a lot. I read these stories growing up. I There were TV incidents that we would follow, like people in the US, I imagine, in the 90s followed the OJ car chase. We'd follow these every now and then where we'd go, somebody stuck around a a dynamite exploded mountain. Somebody stuck down a sewer drain. Somebody stuck in a mining facility. And it really speaks to our country's uh, inability, systemic inability to follow minimum safety protocol, because that's also one thing that this incident is doing, right? It's a... it's very much civil defense from DS9. It's uh, Cisco inadvertently activating that security protocol and everybody getting stuck because of it. Uh, it's a, it it shows you it shows you how uh, something minor triggers off something so major. Because I I would imagine once everybody got out relatively safe in civil defense, they had a big long discussion about what the hell is going on and how do we get this figured out. Yeah, you know, like civil defense almost works in 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 
both senses of either too many rules or not enough. The uh, the whole the whole concept of of basically the thing around you no longer being there to help you, or the thing around you that was once not hostile is now suddenly very hostile, is an interesting sort of thing to think about. And just by the way, Shashank, that story was terrifying. I'm so glad your your cousin survived. But like, I'm just thinking of like all the dangerous things that happen. You know, obviously dangerous things happen everywhere. But just you know, I was I don't know. I, I, my life flashed before my eyes and I was like, wow, that would have, ho- holy cow, that would have really sucked. So I'm glad that your cousin's okay. And I'm really hoping that all of these, uh, young, young folk and their coach can get out and be safe. And, and this, you know, this ends just sort of with, Hey, they got to go on a cool scuba diving trip. And I also think about that, you know, when the, the professionals go to do their job, that's it. They do their job. They can, they can, you know, just work their way through it. Like if you ever listen to the actual Apollo 13 disaster, it's actually boring to listen to Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise and all the rest. They, they made it a lot more interesting. What I'm basically getting at is, is in these sort of moments of like disaster, especially with um, Picard having to work with little kids or, you know, having to work with some outside variable, it's always interesting to see professionals in those, in those situations where they can't just be like robotically doing their job. They have to like keep the kid from freaking out and all this sort of stuff. So my, uh, my heart and thoughts go out to the people who are going to be trying to get these youngsters and their coach out of the cave as well. Oh yeah. This is in no way to say, that we don't commend the people who are helping them. I believe they're now getting food supplied down there. There are uh, cameras that have been sent down so people can take pictures. So they're relatively better than what you would be if you were stuck down. Like, remember that movie, 127 Hours, where where James Franco is stuck with his arm under a rock for 127 hours? I try. I try not to think of that one. I could. I couldn't do the the the, the knife scene. But it's it's definitely not that situation. So we are thankful for that. But uh, it's interesting that Star Trek covered this not once but so many times, just to remind us of how you know, uh, it was it was a new uh, like you were mentioning. It was a new perspective on these characters too. Like Cisco really shows his presence of mind in that episode, Civil Defense, and in Disaster we get to see Picard's that very rarely explored fatherly side, that grandfatherly side to him. And it's it's just a fun way to keep the franchise interesting episode-wise. But yeah, the story is terrible. And I'm so sorry that that happened. But I'm also glad that people are relatively okay. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think we've got some more Deep Space Nine to talk about. And I am very excited for that. So now we will move on to our main topic. Don't get stuck in caves. Deceit, masquerading, who can you trust, who can you not trust? Welcome to Section 25, five dubious characters from the Deep Space Nine universe, franchise, whatever you'd like to call it. In our continuing celebration of the 25th anniversary of DS9, at Section 25, we explore some well-known, some underrepresented, some one-trick wonder characters, and our hope is to eventually get to 25 or more characters that we've covered, and we'll probably move on to talking about 25 exceptional episodes and 25 exceptional moments. 
In our first episode, we talked about five fascinating characters. You can check that one out on our uh, Tricorder Transmissions page. Please, as always, listen to it. Leave us a review. We we do appreciate all the feedback, both positive and negative. But in our episode two, we'll be talking about dubious characters. <laughs> uh, Barry, are you excited for this one? You could say I'm excited, but I'm also uh, I'm also interested in diving in on these characters. One thing I love about Deep Space Nine is just its its adherence to shades of gray. The idea that no one is just completely good, no one is just completely bad. I remember there was actually a uh, Dungeons and Dragons reference where it's like each character is like good or evil or you know neutral good or evil uh, neutral evil or chaotic good or chaotic evil and all these different like bits in between. It had each character pinned and i think one of the best parts about it is those characters that are pinned in the more kind of chaotic zone where you you know they're not always going to do something good that that's one of the best parts about deep space nine probably what makes it makes it to me one of the best uh, star trek series that there has been oh yeah before we get into our five character deep dives that we think are dubious or started out dubious i completely agree with that point i also think uh, that was intentional with deep space nine because they were I would like to think the creators were a little tired of that, just the idealism that they stuck to with the original series and the next generation. And when Deep Space Nine rolled around and Gene Roddenberry didn't have as much power and control over it. He had he had passed on by that point. So, yeah. Right. And uh, uh, I believe uh, there was like he did get to see like a pitch or something and he gave it his blessings, if I remember correctly. Uh, I read it in like a trivia book. But since he's... His that that Roddenberry hand was taken away. They realized now it's now it's time to actually explore what real war is like, and what real people are like. And it's great that we have a couple of series where people know what to aspire to. But now we can do a series about what people really are like, and let's see if we have something good to say about that. And then turns out it was one of their best shows. So. Uh, yeah, let's get into let's get into our, our dubious characters. The first one, I have admitted this many times on our show, is my favorite character in Deep Space Nine. He is a close second to Doctor Bashir, and I keep depending on my day. I keep going back and forth in between the two of them. But Quark, Quark is our first dubious character. He is so dubious. And folks, just so you know, like this isn't necessarily like any kind of ranking system. I wouldn't say that any character is more dubious or left du- less dubious. All you need to do if you want to see some ranked track is go over to our buddy Jim at the Trek ranks and he can get this going. But uh, anyways, yeah, Quark. I like the idea that Quark fits practically anywhere on Deep Space Nine. Like, he could have been the tailor. I'm sure he could have gotten himself into that kind of business, right? Obviously, he picks the he picks his bar for, for, you know, specifically he can make the most money out of that. But that's what I like about Quark is really he could have filled any other gap should there have been one if the bar wasn't the, uh, wasn't the one that he was uh, going to be able to use. I've, I've always imagined Quark from the myth of old, if I was to bring a perspective from there... As the character who's the the mischievous tale teller, the the character who breathes secrets into others' ears and starts battles with nothing but a whisper. I don't know if a lot of people know, but the way the Trojan War started was because one character told this goddess that she was not invited to a particular event. And that character, knowing that she was not invited to that event, 
is what triggered Trojan War. It's a it's a deep, fascinating story. But in Hindu mythology, we have a character named Narada. And all Narada does is go around between realms of gods and talk secrets and gossips. And that's what Quark is. He is he's very much intentionally set in the center location of the station. And whether things are good or bad, whether the world is going to hell or it's a good day at at the station, everybody needs to drink. Everybody needs food. So he takes advantage of that. And that's how he he gets his uh, long, wispy fingers out to get into everybody's business and see where profit is. But yeah, that that is definitely the first place I go to when I think of Quark. You know, and, and he, does, he does sort of strut confidently from place to place. I mean, he did so well under the Cardassian uh, occupation, right? Um, and, and things worked out for him because... Cardassians, they have needs, right? They they still see profit value. They still, you know, have have you know biological needs and all this sort of stuff. They also like to get drunk and fight. You know, not as much as Klingons, of course, but definitely they, you know, they they seem like a a lively bunch when they need to be. But it's interesting watching how Quark reacts under the Dominion, right? He he's he's much more, much more careful, much more guarded. Um, and I, I, I sort of liked watching how he was like, you know, trying to get the Jem'Hadar to be interested in, you know, Dabo. And obviously they're not, they're, you know, they're like six years old and they're just programmed to serve and that's all they have. So I found that kind of interesting how he actually reacted and how we sort of got this buildup of Quark being such a lively and, you know, you know, artful Dodger like character. And then he runs basically face first into the dominion. And that was, that was entertaining to see kind of watching Armin Shimmerman have to change his characters, um, ideals and, and needs, um, very quickly. To a certain extent, by the time the Ferengis rolled around in DS nine, people had given up on them. They had gone from once being touted as the real big bads of TNG to the comic relief. Every time they showed up, and I think what um, uh, Armin Shimmerman, Aaron Eisenberg, what they did with the Ferengis in DS9 is to a certain extent how the Ferengis were turned around into serious, intense, significant threats to me. Uh, that's what the show felt like. And even on our uh, Twitter account, at Polytrex, I have uh, defended many a Ferengi episode because uh, I'm one of those people who loves Ferengi episodes. Every now and then when life life seems to get to me, I'll sit down and watch a Ferengi episode. Just I like being transported to that world. I like I like taking a break from the sci-fi and going into pure fantasy. And uh, except for Profit and Lace, which I agree is not a great episode. I can I can genuinely say that objectively. I'll defend its intentions. But uh, going back to the actual character itself, if I was to politically compare uh, Quark to a real world figure, I would think there, he would be one of those. Uh, he, Quark, this is uh, Quark to me is like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. It's what? <laughs> yeah, I, I know this sounds bizarre, but someone like Sarah Sanders, I can look at that. I can look at that person and go, she's not. She's definitely not here, completely on her own volition. Like. She clearly has her own agenda. She wants to get ahead. She wants to become bigger in the political spectrum. And she will do anything to do that. She will say anything. She will she will blurt out whatever is being told for her to do. 
all the while quietly building up her own little political uh, her 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 own political barracks behind her so when she gets big enough to get out of there she will because you know she's not going to be there forever but as a character that that loyalty uh, to 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 what you want is is so overwhelming that you will say and do anything like that's that side of Sarah Sanders is what I'd imagine Quark to be like a little bit not not through the show definitely not through the show especially not closer to seasons five six seven where he really comes into his own and he actually starts caring so much about uh, the way the Ferengi order is being toppled but definitely in the beginning a character who will say anything do anything be anywhere just to get their agenda forward i'd imagine that's a little bit like sarah sanders like would would you agree disagree i guess sort of i i, I think in the sense of that that they both are definitely out to survive and out to um advance their own interests i would i would fully agree i i guess for me cork sort of he's always that the guy who kept his shop open when when World War Two hit, kind of thing, you know. Imagine Poland, the the Russians are invas- invading from one side, and the uh, Germans are invading from the other, and you've just got that one shop owner who's going to keep business going, shall we say, in any way, shape, or form, and of course is willing to go into any direction. He's he's the survival of any he's the survivor of any conflict, right? He he doesn't pick sides. He's I I, I guess like if I was to pick like a specific individual like of history, I, I can't. Really Really come up with one immediately i guess he's more conceptually like you know the the underlying wants and needs of of people who buy into market capitalism right the idea that you know you can work and and um and gain profit for yourself and stuff and maybe there's a bit of a jab in the sense that he rarely does things above board and in fact does a lot of things below board to survive and and when i say like that's the problem is because he's he's lit he's living in a place without money. I think Quark shows just how much of a survivor he can be and still make profit, literally working within the confines of the United Federation of Planets. Like he's still able to make profit and do all that sort of stuff. Like that's like the greatest survival story, the greatest like under the radar dodge anyone's ever made. So his dubiousness, I think, is existing within a world that I think is sort of corruptible um and advancement really only comes at the uh at the either the selling of things that are valuable to other people or in miss huckabee Sam- sanders case her soul there is there is a certain argument to be made that all politics is inherently dirty like people need to go underboard they need to do things that the rest of us aren't willing to do it's like millions billions of people go out and eat meat every day yet if you ask them to actually go ahead and slaughter the chicken how many of them would actually be willing to do it it's it's a little bit like that to me with quark uh quark does he's not uh, he's not just the bartender who runs a store he's the bartender who runs his bar while getting latinum smuggled in while getting people eliminated that he doesn't like while getting business run through in another quadrant while going out and uh, finding play, finding various way to just cheat people just get as much profit as he can from everybody that ever interacts with him that is quark's goal and to a certain extent that is also why quark survives is because when the Cardassians are there, he knows how to do how to work the Cardassians. When Deep Space Nine and Starfleet comes around, he knows how to work them around. He even 
to a to, to a incredible amount uh, of surprise as i keep watching the show he he knows how to work odo and oh, yeah. he knows ex- he knows exactly where to keep odo where to how much to give odo how much to keep doing so he does not get in trouble with odo to someone like odo who claims to be emotionless uh, non caring very strict very hey being very hardline very iron fisted he knows how to work odo and i think in that level he also reminds me of political figures like henry kissinger who very much did the dirty work underboard while keeping up a mirage of everything's well everything's great make sure you get that person eliminated yeah you know uh, so yeah i can see i can see a lot of henry kissinger i can see a lot of uh, diplomats from the cold war uh, or big name politicians from the cold war people who are trying to keep up a front of everything's okay everything's fine yeah. but underneath it is like oh, holy crap the world is falling apart how do we survive so most most of the south vietnamese leaders during the vietnam war probably was was a little bit of that of everything's fine and then the holy crap in behind one thing i i thought i would just bring up just this is more philosophical i guess but it's definitely up uh, your alley uh, mr avaru do you think that odo and cork almost work kind of like a diet batman and the joker hear me out so the idea that if odo wasn't constantly having to fight Quark, he would eventually, I think, clean up Deep Space Nine to the point that he'd that, have that thing running like a well-oiled machine. There would be zero ability for crime. He'd be able to be on top of everything. So Quark kind of works as like a like a bit of a channel, because my fear would be if, if Odo got bored, what would he do? Like if he managed to get to the point of, of cleaning Deep Space Nine perfectly, like would he just become the greatest criminal? And that comes from the idea of Batman is actually criminally insane, and the Joker is Alfred, and he goes out and and he does these crimes and stuff like that to keep Batman busy, or else he might end up becoming terrible. Oh, that's a fascinating perspective. First, uh, I, I I can see that. I can actually, long story short, I think you're right. I do think uh, Quark is in a lot of ways the Joker to Odo's Batman, because Batman needs Joker to survive. Absolutely. Batman has, if, if there is no Joker, Batman's identity gets gets lost it's it gets lost in a in a, a puddle of cliches and un, unwanted darkness like why would you walk away from people while they're talking to you well you're dealing with a insane clown that's why <laughs> when you're when you have to deal with people like that who will laugh while you beat them to pulp you how can you function normally socially and yet it's your terrible responsibility to keep this city clean so you also have to constantly keep questioning what this guy is pushing me so much how do i how do i maintain my sanity while well, you put up that iron fist you put up that mask and you do your best to keep it going you you do your best to hold everything together and odo snaps odo definitely snaps every now and then uh, again another uh, like character flaw in someone who says i don't I'm very emotionless and I'm very stoic. You there are moments in that show where you're legitimately scared of Odo. And I think it's because there is someone like Quark who will just never give up, who's that annoying leech who keeps sucking out every every drop of sanity left in you 
and then just keep doing what they do you know it's it's such a yeah that's definitely the batman joker is definitely a really good uh, parallel to that relationship i would just say that um quark's joker is definitely not heath ledgery um he's definitely much more the caesar romero jack nicholson sort of feel for sure oh yeah uh, have we talked about Quark for 30 minutes now? I know we have other characters. <laughs> yeah. I well, just... yeah. We, we will move on. We should. And so speaking of, of very uh, uh, dubious characters and ones that, that kind of maybe elicit maybe a bit more uh, philosophical sort of tones, I guess maybe that's the direction I'm feeling tonight, folks, is the prophets or the wormhole aliens, depending on uh, depending on what side you're on. I'm very excited to talk about this one. They remind me so much of uh, the faceless gods that we have in Hindu mythology. And I'm hoping I'll get into some of that. But go ahead. Tell us about the wormhole aliens. Why are they dubious, Barry? They're dubious because you can always tell that they're not really working within the interests of the people around them. And I often think about that as, you know, if you were to look at them either as gods or if you were to look at them as aliens, it doesn't really matter because there's the old saying by Isaac Asimov, anything sufficiently advanced from what we're used to right now is basically indistinguishable from magic. So like, imagine taking an iPhone to the 10th century, right? People would be blown away by that or like a projector, like a projector, like a project and sudden, you know, obviously, okay, have some kind of power source, but basically like imagine showing that type of technology. So if they are wormhole aliens, or if they're like actual gods, it really doesn't matter to the level the people who deal with them are at. Now, there are those of us who probably maybe take a little more care than others. But when you step on an ant, how, 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 you know, hurt are you? How sad are you? Right? It's not to say that ants are completely meaningless or useless within our ecosystem. But if you run one over with your foot or bicycle or car tire, you're not going to lose that much sleep, I'm pretty sure. So when the wormhole aliens or prophets, whichever, are acting on in Deep Space Nine, you know, it brings up a sort of a larger question of the, you know, the what is a person to a mob? Well, what is a mob to a king? What is a king to a god? What is a god to a non-believer? But I would say that it kind of stops at the, well, they're actually here. Like, Cisco is definitely sort of that non-believer from the beginning, but he becomes a believer later. And th- that's really fascinating because, it again, sure, they don't have to necessarily be prophets they could just be actual aliens but how he has to start dealing with their reality is very fascinating interesting theory time i think it's interesting people could think this is ridiculous i actually think the wormhole aliens know exactly what linear time is and they are just playing cisco just to i think the whole idea when you're that powerful you're that omnipotent and everything in in the universe is basically mundane to you amusement is all you have to keep going and i think what they're doing with cisco in that episode is very much there uh, when I, the episode i'm referencing to is the, is the pilot uh, they're very much just playing him along because it seems ridiculous to me that for someone who essentially knows everything does not understand how time works uh, and that shows a lot about their character to me and how their agenda is ultimately like if I was a wormhole alien, I would imagine my agenda would be, hey, let's let's see how we can make things more unpredictable. Let's see how we can make how we can make things more interesting. Because throughout the show, you never actually see them have a agenda. Like you never know this is their goal is to do A, B, C. You never see that. You just 
you just they just come in unpredictably they leave unpredictably and even the ending of the show is is into a certain extent unpredictable but i think that they actually know everything that's about to happen and especially in that first episode that pilot they're having fun with cisco more or less and to that extent those characters remind me again of these uh, like very much these uh, while I think, Barry, you you tell us more about what I said and how ridiculous it sounds. No, I, I think you're onto something. That um, they are very much aware of a lot of things, and they are coming from a different perspective of communication. Right? They so much remind me. And and folks, if you if you get a chance, you need to watch this movie, Arrival. It stars uh, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, and it is a sleeper hit sci-fi amazement but the cephalopod aliens are are um oh spoiler alert right now skip ahead a bit if you hear me talking probably keep skipping until shashank talks again anyways um they you know they can see through time right they they know what's happening before it happens and all this sort of stuff they have a much different concept of time itself but yeah i think you're right shashank in the sense that like they might not necessarily know how it operates, but they're aware that there is a thing called linear time that some some beings exist within. I think of it much like, you know, we're aware that dogs don't see the way we see and they don't smell the way we smell. In fact, basically flip the senses and that gives you an idea of, uh, of dogs' perception, right? Like their sense of smell is much stronger than their sense of sight. Not to say they're blind, but I mean, they can't distinguish between green and red. And my dog Kona, when I'm sitting on the couch and I'm perfectly still, sometimes doesn't know it's me. She smells that I'm in the room though and will start smelling around. So it'd be much like us smelling food, walking into a room and looking around for it. Um, but to be aware of it, I think, yeah, I think the, I think the wormhole aliens definitely are and uh, see arrival. Uh, yes, see arrival. See all of Denis Villeneuve's movies because he's incredible. But the 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 group I was trying to think of was the the group that is with the Dalai Lama. I'd like to think that's what the wormhole aliens are. They're people who who introduce an unpredictable variable into uh, well, that's an oxymoron, unpredictable and variable. They introduce a variable into a world that is so much relied on the constant and the familiar and the comfortable and the routine. And they talk about things like, you're worried about this life. We are worried about the nature of the universe. And we what we think of is so far beyond, so far removed from reality. Uh, we have little to no care for it. And that's essentially how monks operate. And that's essentially how people who uh, call themselves sages or people who uh, have dedicated their lives to a, a pursuit of the philosophical. That's how they operate is they have little to no care for reality. And that's what uh, these like the good philosophical non-religious groups would be to me is uh, is the wormhole aliens where they'd go. You keep worrying about your paycheck and your work visa and your savings account and your food and how the world how World War Two might be coming uh, if you're back in the 20th century, but we'll, you know, we have to think about the 21st century. We have to think about the 22nd century. We have to think about how to keep humanity as a whole going. And that is our intention. That is our, that is our purpose. I think that's why during the 60s and the 70s, you saw a lot of that hippie movement and that, that movement to the Hare Rama, Hare Krishna movement is because everybody was so afraid 
that people did not know where to go except to the places and groups where people wanted to remove themselves from reality and think about something that is so far out of the things that we regularly think and operate about. I have a thought. Go for it. Are the wormhole aliens actually just the traveler who realized that his last time on Star Trek didn't get him very good ratings, so he just quietly reinvented himself? Barry, I love you so much. Just, just every time anybody talks about the traveler, I want to cry. And the the possibility that the traveler and the wormhole aliens might be connected. Ah. Uh, like, I, I don't even want to keep going. I just want to pull at that thread. But I know we have to keep going on. But yes, the wormhole aliens are definitely, they're dubious in a, in a lot of ways because they're all-knowing. While Q is outward all-knowing and he'll tell you he's outward all-knowing, these characters are, they, they're, they're the still waters that run deep. They're calm and stoic and they'll, they'll very much keep tugging you along, but they know at the end of the day, Everything for in their perspective is going to be all right. So what they think and operate about is, again, out of the bubble that we think and operate about. Absolutely. With that, I think we'll, we will move on to our, our next next character is Dunar. Now, Casey Biggs does a fantastic job. I enjoy just Casey Biggs as an actor, just that said. I also fist bumped him at uh, the I-Bar last year at STLV, which was pretty cool. So, you know, there's that as well. So I like Damar because he comes on as this, like, you know, just sort of a henchman-y, you know, he's just the next in command kind of guy. And obviously does some awful stuff and, you know, is not, um, not in of himself redeemable sort of at the start here. And, um, that, of course, comes when he kills Goldicott's daughter, Zial. Obviously, he's, like, unredeemable, and you're like, oh, blah, 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't like this guy around me, you know, like, I don't want to, you know, you don't want to like a guy like that. But by the end of it, he's, like, the hero of Cardassia. He turns around and does the right thing. And the politics, politrex, you know, societal look back at that, I would say, would be, you know, when Nazi generals went up against Hitler, when, you know, different uh, different people in command in different revolutions suddenly went, no, wait a minute, the revolution's actually the right way to go. Of course, the American Revolution had that happen. He's, he's you know, the conscience and the courage. Now, for, for Damar, obviously, that courage comes a little late, and of course, it costs him uh, dearly. But um, I don't know. Do you think, do you think Damar is, though he is a dubious character when you watch him through the series, do you think he's redeemed? I think the thing that redeems him is his death. The 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 death of Dinar and what follows, especially with Kira Nerys, in a way, by taking the Dominion headquarters at the end, how she honors him with that. When, when Kira could find a place in her heart to honor him in a certain way and respect him, uh, I'm sure we all can at least look at his character arc and go, well, there is a person who was inherently evil, but then how do we define evil? Is it someone who's always evil or someone who actually does the right thing toward the end of their lives and they die for the greater good? Is that person completely evil? And that's just a good question to ask, like not just within our our listeners and people who watch DS9, but when I tell you a story that might not be exactly like 
Dinar from DS9 or taking your example, right? In World War II, we knew the Soviet Union was evil. Everybody accepted that. But toward closer to the end, when the Soviet Union switched their allegiances and they pretty much turned on Nazi Germany, essentially leaving them to their own defenses, that was one of the big things that helped us win the war. Does that mean the Soviet Union is completely evil? Or does that mean that the Soviet Union has in the in herself somewhere the intent to do good and the intent to defend and the intent to stand up and say no at some point so that's what dinar is to me he's a perfect metaphor for that world war ii pre-world war ii even a little bit post-world war ii soviet union is uh, a person or uh, an ideology of not completely evil, but definitely someone who's in evil enough. And then you find them doing something that re- that at least attempts to redeem them in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And, and you kind of see a folly grow from that too, right? Like, you know, thinking of the Soviet Union under Stalin and Stalin's choice, you know, his was so much more interest-based and sort of like intrinsically set but yeah, it, it, Damar also, you know, he he does some some terrible things. It's only when Cardassia is truly under threat that he actually stands up and does something. And that makes me wonder sometimes of like, had the conditions not changed in a way that was favorable to, you know, your interests, would you have ever changed at all? And that, that's that's maybe a bigger sort of worldwide question in different different parts of the world where different conflicts have taken place. Individuals who lead countries or groups of people suddenly become more interested because hey, wait a minute, now it's really important. Like, I think of Dick Cheney, right? Uh, Anti-LGBTQ until his daughter came out as a lesbian. Well, does that redeem Dick Cheney as now a supporter for LGBTQ rights? Or do we still go, no, we remember how you were before this directly affected you? It it, it does sort of call to question DeMar's character arc in that sense of, you know, had Cardassia, had, let's say this happened instead to a different Dominion-controlled world, you know, or a group of people. I mean, Damar clearly didn't lift a finger to that, so is he then objectively good? Since we're pulling at comic books today, let's pull at another character, the Punisher. The Punisher is often called an anti-hero. Uh, and the Punisher's arc starts with the death of his family. And he sees no moral compass in killing anyone who he deems has done something wrong. There are characters across the Punisher lore of people who are like Dinar, where they've started out evil, but due to lack of a certain amount of information or due to lack of a a better mentor or someone to change them into good, they have gone on to do the right thing, but that doesn't stop the Punisher from killing them. So it's it's that Punisher problem, and it's that anti-hero problem. Or with, with Dinar, it's definitely a lot closer to villain than anti-hero. But here's what I will say about Dinar, is that his final days were good. His final acts were good. Whether or not you agree with the character, and you'd be completely justified in saying that character is fully evil, Uh, Definitely very much dubious, but the final acts are good. And I think for some people, people like Dinar, who are ultimately redeemable, I think that's enough. Yeah. Well, that poses an interesting question back to what you'd originally said was, you know, his redemption was in his death. And I think that's what it is, is, you know, you know, he was good in his final moments and then, you know, he was killed because like 
I don't know, let's say Damar succeeds. Let's say he doesn't die. Let's say he he manages to lead the Cardassians. They take out the Dominion. It's, uh, you know, the treaties being signed. He's going to be at that table. And that's going to be a very fascinating sort of moment where, you know, do they turn to him and be like, okay, Damar, you committed countless war crimes and can be tied to several other ones. So you want to go to jail now? It's again, uh, it harkens back to memory, the Nuremberg trials. And a lot of people at that at that trials use the defense. I was just doing my job. So I'm sure that is an argument he'd go to is, well, I was just doing what was right for Cardassia. And in that moment, what I did was right for Cardassia. And uh, you can you can kill me. You can execute me, but history will judge me and they'll know I'm good. And these are the pleas of someone who's trying to justify their own evil. And there is, again, no place for that. But if we are going to count all the bad things, I'm sure Danar will somewhere get some kind of recognition by the Cardassians once he's taken back home during his pre-trial to where they go, well, he also did A, B, and C to make sure Cardassia was relatively okay. What do we do about that? Do we completely ignore it? Or is it like the fifth light when there are really only four lights and you want to say there are five lights, but they want you to say there are four lights? Uh, it's Is it like that last light where you just conveniently ignore it? So it, again, brings... Uh, a lot of what evil is, is also the reaction of people to evil. And when an evil person does something good, there is a weird place, especially now with the Me Too movement. Everybody's questioning, do I still watch all my Kevin Spacey movies? Do I still watch all my Harvey Weinstein movies? What do I do? Uh, and it's a, it's definitely a, a problem that we have to grapple with. And people have been grapple, grappling with across time. And that's what I think Dinar's arc does is it makes you grapple with that question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you were saying you wanted to kind of go on with the previous uh, conversation. I'm I'm kind of delving into like, oh, you know, like, how are the Cardassians like the perfect sci-fi distillation of, of a fascist regime in in peacetime or, or you know, in, in circumstances, right? But again, moving on, these are these are all places that I'd like to go. But uh, we'll have to we'll just have to have more episodes to shank. That's just the way it's gonna have to be. Hey, that's why it's called section 25, man. I'm sure we'll get to a point where we'll go wait, we said section 25, but we really have section 28. So section 28. Yay. Uh, but uh, moving on to who I think is another really fascinating, very much on the face evil and uh, reminds me again a lot because of my background of India's godmen and godwomen, people who make up fake promises because they conjure up or they claim to conjure up connections to gods and they'll make you pay money. They'll make you pay with your with your physical self, your mental self. Uh, Kai Wen. Kai Wen is our next dubious character. Oh, Kai Wen. First of all, people people don't say this enough, and I really mean it. Louise Fletcher is one of the best actors of Trek, hands down. 
she is up there with the rest. And I was originally going to like say like the other good DS9 actors, but I ended up just writing the entire cast down twice. And like, <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, it's really hard to find a bad actor in Deep Space Nine. And that's something everyone here you can take to the bank. Like, honestly, I can count on one hand. Yeah, one hand, maybe a thumb of characters who I'm like, yeah, they're okay. But like, Louise Fletcher playing Kai Wynn, I hated her. Like, from the very start, I was like, ugh, this, oh, she's terrible. But not in, like, a she's a terrible actor. It's a no, she's, like, a terrible individual, right? Like, she is she is the epitome of a snake in the grass. And Louise Fletcher just, yeah, she just makes it happen. So, like, obviously some of my highlights with Kai Wynn are her, her plot to kill Vedic Brile. And and it was not just like some some nicety that she was at Deep Space Nine to get this done. She went there to call out Cisco and like made a scene about him being not Bajoran and he can't this and that with the with the wormhole aliens. In the meantime, she's also putting together the works. Of course, she's never fully connected to it, but she, she obviously she's behind the attempt on Vedic Baral. Like that's incredible. That. Um, that she would just not go there secretly or not go there at all. No, she went also to just be a jerk for like most of the time and drew a bunch of attention to herself. Uh, the next one would be in life support again with Vedic Brile. She willfully took credit for getting treaty negotiations completed with Cardassia, even though like Brile again was like super integral. So I don't know. I, I, I think just those little bits of Kai Wayne, like you really just see super selfish, super self-interested but then also like full of all of this privilege she just reminds me very much of this like four-year-old girl sitting like in a little like wooden chair with a dress and like the scowl on her face and she's like very angrily kicking her feet you know because her feet don't touch the ground she got a gigantic lollipop that's that's kai wins like i don't know my artist interpretation of her so i have one bone to pick with you about that all actors in ds9 had good argument Odo's bucket was just not emoting. You could tell it was just all about the paycheck for that bucket. You could tell it wanted to go back to the trailer while they were shooting those scenes. Just get out of there as quickly as possible. It was just all about the money. Zero chemistry, like no character, no smile. Just It was just such a... That 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 bucket just did not know what it was doing. Dear, dear listeners of mm-hmm. Politrex... I also thought there when Shashank said, I have a bone to pick with you, I was like, all right, here we go. We're going to do a big debate on Kai Wen. Awesome. Bucket. Anyway, Shashank, <laughs> the mic is yours. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that bucket just did not emote right. <laughs> like I had, I had deep-rooted problems with that acting. Just well, not grateful to be there. Well, you know what? We'll but, do, we'll do um, the most interesting inanimate objects of Deep Space Nine. We'll do the politrix of that, and we'll uh, we'll deep dive that bucket. I promise you. But anyways, Kai Wen in inanimate tricks. <laughs> uh, but yes, Kai Wen. Kai Wen. I hate Kai Wen. Just like that character. So growing up in India, there is a there is a popular figure that we all knew of called Baba Ramdev. For those of you who want to Google it, and I think you should because it's fascinating, B-A-B-A space R-A-M-D-E-V. Baba Ramdev is someone who claims to be connected with God and is uh, he, he, he has hundreds of millions of people in India under his charm. He claims to have renounced the material world and all he does is talk about our culture and Hinduism and gods and how homosexuality is bad and 
how the fa- the family system is crumbling and just how god does not will that to happen basically your typical religious evil bad guy except this guy has control over hundreds of millions of people who take his word to be bible no pun intended and who accept the who lit, quite literally kiss the feet uh, of the people that walk around him the people that he calls his cohorts his assistants and people who worship the very ground on which he walks again quite literally it's a uh, he, he's someone who is on the face of it all a, a person who claims to be one of the one with gods and uh, someone who's renounced the material world but someone who's also in control of a billion rupee enterprise and someone who owns some of the biggest richest private properties in india across the world someone who has deep deep pockets uh, that flush out money to political parties in india uh, that are he has connections that that go deep even into the criminal underworld as some people have claimed so that's what kaivan reminds me of every time i see her it's like damn it it's that baba ramdev again because i had re- <laughs> because i had relatives growing up who were old and they really bought into it so when i had the misfortune of hanging out with them they would put on the tv and this guy owns a tv channel so he would be on the tv all the time and i look at him and oh, jesus i am watching this again and when i'm when i put on ds9 for the first time and i saw kaivan i was like damn it it's the i i came this far and i I fell in love with this franchise only to find that my favorite show now has Baba Ramdev. So yeah, that's the love to hate it sort of thing. And I just I just wikipedia'd Baba Ramdev while you're talking there and I also dislike this individual for saying like, you know, teaching yoga will make people not get AIDS and he thinks beheading people is okay as, you know, if they uh if they don't show um reverence um Bharat Mata Ki Jai, I think is what you'd say. Mhm. Bharat Mata Ki Jai, which is uh a praise to mother india oh wow there you go well he wants people to be beheaded if they don't say that yeah, so, yeah he sucks and i would say you know you you've hit the nail right on the head right he's opportunist obviously taking a lot of people's i mean he's he's a grifter but in in that very kind of opulent sort of way right like when when vedic win becomes kai win again you know it's it's under dubious means that this happens and you know, one other actual, you know, connection that I would that I would give to her is is the idea that she she doesn't feel faith, right? Like she sometimes gets angry and frustrated that she actually doesn't feel the connection to her 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 uh, her gods. And that that has happened before with with different groups. Um, uh, Mother Teresa, for instance, in her in her you know posthumous writings or posthumously uh, released writings she does mention that she doesn't feel the love of god from time to time and you know that's uh that's crazy that that you know people in these high high powerful positions i mean i also have some some opinions on mother Teresa. i was raised roman catholic and uh i can't say i'm a terribly huge fan actually but um if you do like her that's fine you can like her but definitely the idea of of a leader of a faith not feeling that faith is kind of where I'm getting to here. And I think that's fascinating. These characters like Kai Bin and just pretty much most of the Kais we see tend to be evil and power hungry and they're only a couple redeeming. One of them dies. 
so that's not good but uh, the 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 guys to me very much de- remind me of that god man cult uh, someone who's trying to keep a connection uh, with this power with this un- unseeable unfeelable force that is controlling us and i think that is what a lot of uh, the god men and women do do is some of them or i would argue that most of them actually do not feel any kind of connection but they realize that this is a great private enterprise to run uh, and it's a really easy way to make money there is a really good john oliver segment that was made on televangelists but these are clearly people that want your money that's really what they're in for the whole thing is a private enterprise in the real world and Kaiman reminds me of televangelists reminds me of phony church organizations phony hindu organizations that claim to make cure your ailment if you give them a certain amount of money and not to get too much into the darker side these god men and god women in india are constantly arrested constantly like an disturbingly number of periodic times arrested to where uh, it just starts making you question everything about the religion in a lot of ways but uh, it again that's not just limited to india because we know that's very much a part of uh, the american church culture within that uh, the, the movie spotlight does a really good job of portraying that so while ds9 doesn't get into that which is again i i understand why they wouldn't but these are those characters right especially kai wen uh, that but she's really in there to fulfill her selfish evil agenda you could say that the kai's kind of work like the bad morals of starfleet that call to question all of the values that starfleet that starfleet stands for and here's here's you know one of the highest up leaders coming in and being terrible it kind of makes you wonder about authority and the hypocrisy that underlies authority and how those people at the top, you know, don't always think that they got to the top under good means. And I think that's that's maybe the best part about Kai Wynn and her dubiousness is you really get an amazing like I don't know, it's kind of like a it's like a dissection of of how a corrupt official gets into power through their corruption and and how they manage to do that because at no point does Kaiwen ever feel like she's doing anything terribly wrong like i think she's aware that she you know puts her hand in the cookie jar from time to time maybe more than she should but she doesn't necessarily see it that way and i don't think that a lot of these leaders do they they kind of get maybe obsessed with their own greatness and that is something i think that we just as as citizens of our own countries and and of this planet should always understand with with leadership there is always underlying hypocrisy and to be able to challenge your leaders and to to be able to give your leaders the criticism that I think they as leaders deserve you know if someone really just told Kai Wynn to give her head a shake she'd probably quit I think she would probably just quit and like storm off but like maybe for other people if they get if in leadership positions they get that criticism back on them, I think that's can that can be something to strengthen them. I mean, I use maybe Cisco as an example. You know, he has a leadership position, but he has Kira, he has Dax. I mean, even Worf questions him from time to time, and I think quite rightly so. But maybe that's maybe one of the biggest problems with Kai Wynn is she was she was surrounded by too many yes people. Um, 
in that sense. The other piece that I want to go on here is her just sheer resentment, right? Like she also suffered under the occupation. She was tortured. She was imprisoned, but she doesn't feel like her experience was as valid as the freedom fighters. And I find that really fascinating too, because there's that underlying resentment for her own people. The, just the, yeah, a lot to cover there. Just the bubble of, uh, of Kai Win itself is so fascinating because uh, Kaiwen is also very, very smart. As a character, Kaiwen is, I would argue, is hyper-intelligent. She knows exactly who to play and how to play them, uh, except when she runs into people smarter than her, like Kira. And uh, I, I, maybe I'm looking for it, but when I, whenever I see the Bajorans, I'm often reminded of my own culture. They look a lot like Hindus. They dress a lot like them. They also wear jewelry like Hindus do. And... They're also a little polytheistic because they believe in multiple gods, right? And uh, like Hindus, Bajorans have a cult of personality problem. And they're almost looking for people to worship. And they're looking to latch on to someone blindly. And Kaivan exploits that very much. She, she, she knows exactly where and when to be and how to... There are episodes where she shows up just at the right moment to push the blame on to Kira or to push the blame onto Cisco and let them see the evil that is Deep Space Nine and Starfleet and how they should be left alone and so, so Kaiwen can pursue her own agenda and get that ultimate power position. So in a lot of ways, there is also that comparison to that character for me is exploiting cult of personality to the to their best, most profitable purposes possible. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why she sees... She sees Cisco as such a threat, especially over time. It's pretty clear that she is she's threatened by his implacability. Cisco's not one to be corrupted. Like he's not a Boy Scout or anything. And and obviously that sort of darkness gets brought up. I mean, really, Cisco could be one of the dubious characters as well to me. But anyways, I really think that she sees Cisco's virtue as just another piece of threat because she knows that he's not going to be you know inspired by her right i mean he has a closer lifeline to the people who she was raised to worship than she does so yeah a fascinating character and and one who i really think was acted well speaking of characters being acted well our last character for the night and definitely one again who is up there with the rest is the often um hard to pin cassidy yates Cassidy Yates, such a delightful character, such a lovable character, and definitely someone you tend to grow to like as the show progresses, but does not start out that way, does she, Barry? I'll start small. Maybe we'll we'll kind of bridge this as we go, um, because Shashank and I have pre-talked about this, and some of that recording might have to get into the actual episode, so you guys might get a bit of an extension on Cassidy Yates. But anyways, um, she's... Uh, a woman of African descent, cis woman of African descent, who is so incredibly threatening, I think, to any 21st century male that she would want to have a relationship with, that it's it's so amazing how she operates in such a matter-of-fact way. She is a just completely on her on her own in every way, shape, or form, and she's not one to just do the rules if it's not necessarily something that would benefit her, but not necessarily hurt others as bad either. Cassidy Yates, because we are very much in 
the moment you and I currently she reminds me a lot of representative Maxine Waters have you been following this US representative not a lot no tell us all about her yeah Maxine Waters is uh, a democrat who often tends to be more expressive if if that is a good way to put it she tends to be very much aggressive and she comes on strong and she's very uh, she's very level headed and focused and the republicans always try to do their best to call her insane or crazy or she doesn't know what she's talking about she's just an old yelly woman and recently she got under some uh, fire for saying well you know they're putting kids in cages maybe this is not the time for civility this is the time for confrontation and getting things done people took that comment and turned it into Maxine Waters calls for violence on the streets against Republicans and uh, they they try to start a big smear campaign against her but they ultimately failed if you ask me uh, because what you're saying was right is you know the only way to get answers at this point is confrontation and you should be prepared for it so that's what Cassidy Yates reminds me of is uh, a very aggressive very I know what I want and I'm not going to be scared for it or be apologetic for it I'm just going to go out and get it and it's up to you to figure it out if you want to join me on this or not she's she's at once a really good uh, mate to Cisco she's a she's a really good mother figure to Jake and she's an independent capitalistic person who wants to pursue her ambition she's at once all of those things and that's what is really fascinating about her yeah i think to to maybe bore down a little bit here i really don't think she needs cisco i think she loves cisco and maybe there's a need in that or whatever but like she is not someone who like was kind of bad and then cisco like straightened her out and that was that right? No, she goes to jail for what she did with the Maquis. And she's like, bye. And then she comes back and she's like, I'm back. And there was, there's never like a, a moment where she's like, I've changed my ways, Ben. And now I'm only going to ship happy things and teddy bears and good. Th- no, she's still going to do her shipments. She's still going to do her stuff. And there's not really that much of a, a like I don't really think she has a reason to be remorseful to be honest uh, and secondly you know she is her own person and I think that's the biggest part you know they always say the best thing to know is yourself and that's what I really like about her in in that sense that she that Cassidy Yates is at at the same time loyal to those who she loves but also she's doing stuff on the side for sure and that's what makes her so dubious, but in that kind of slow burn kind of way that I think is really cool. Well, the way Cassidy had started out was definitely not the most heroic. Would you agree? No. And there wasn't, you know, her her heroism, again, is, is maybe a little self-serving. So I'm going to cross the streams for a second here. Here we go. And, and this might hurt for some of us. Cassidy Yates, her character, harkens me quite a bit to Han Solo. In the sense that they do work within their own interests, but they do good in the end. Now, not to the level of Damar where they're actually committing like full time, like full on atrocities and stuff like that. It's more in the sense of you're not always going to get 100% from them because 100% for them is always going to themselves. And they will do the right thing. But, you know, I mean, for most of episode four of Star Wars, you see 
Han Solo not really being like the perfect dude, right? And you're like, eh, am I going to trust this guy? You know, it, it's that sort of feel that I get from Cassidy Yates. Now, all love to our Star Wars fans, and I'm sure there are people who who like both franchises. I enjoy both franchises, but uh, I think Cassidy Yates is a much more well-rounded, more um, you know, more fleshed out character. And she has a lot more nuances, I think, than, than Han Solo did. And I mean, I don't know, don't at me on that one. But anyways, I do think she has more substance than, than Han Solo does, because she just had more time to be a character. But there is that sort of feel of, of you're, you're right, she's yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have trusted her. I wouldn't have seen her going in that direction. And I think Iris Stephen Bear and the other writers did a fantastic job of, of giving her, you know, an arc. If I was to conclude my thoughts on Cassidy Yates and the actress who plays her, Penny Johnson, throughout the show, I saw Cassidy Yates have a really good character turn. She went from again non-heroic to very much a character who is heroic, supportive, really positive, really optimistic, a nice character. And even toward the end when she gets married, just all of that, I, I, I enjoyed every bit of it. But throughout the show, as I watched her, I never really know if I could if I could trust her. I just did not know. And that is credit to the writers. That is credit to Penny Johnson. And that is why the character to me is dubious because it's a it's another really good thing that DS9 did is they're just showing you ways to look at your own life while you're pursuing a character. Well, this person did not start out heroic. Now they're doing good things. Are they really good? You will find out as you watch it and you question your own feelings and perspectives as you watch it. That is the joy of the show. That, that was what uh, a lot of Cassidy Yates was to me. Well, and, and, and I think that's a good way to kind of end it off is a lot of these characters, and we could have added more, we do have another dubious character in our DS9 repertoire. Um, of course, that would be Garrick, and we have an entire episode set to him. So go check uh, Spies in Our Star Society if you want to know more about uh, our, our pol- polytrechal political... I can't do that. <laughs> if you want to know more... <laughs> if you want to know more about our political, social, um, the politrex of uh, Garrick, you can check him out on Spies in Our Star Society. And I think that's the thing is a lot of these characters that we have have their dubious moments. Even Cisco himself in the great, in the pale moonlight, of course, we see Cisco's dubious side. And that's what that's what gives Star Trek Deep Space Nine this neat and fresh kind of feel to it. And I'm I'm really glad that 25 years on, this show is still getting its political reverberations. Shashank and I are capable of star trekking our way through the 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 you know the monthly news, and I would say Shashank and maybe you'd be wrong, or maybe I'd be wrong. Two thirds of our news segments we usually can bring back to somewhere in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, because in a weird, horrible, not at all good way, Deep Space Nine is more relevant now than ever because the the society and the characters they painted seem to come back to light if the world was a nice tng place that would that would be something that we'd be comparing things to but that's just not the world we live in it's true so with that folks we'll uh, we'll be saying goodbye to you again for uh, an, a little while we might be a little late getting our next episode out just due to some post star trek las vegas hangovers i mean um 
just being tired, of course, from uh, uh, STLV. But we uh, will have more coming. And of course, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can definitely do that. Uh, we've got some pretty cool stuff happening these days. Check out all our other shows on the Tricorder Transmissions. There's something for everyone. And I just have to say, I'm so honored to be working with so many wonderful people, Shashank included. And if you if you are you know still looking for some more Star Trek, you're not fully uh, full on your Star Trek. You can always check out Dan and Bill on the Trek Geeks. They're always loads of fun as well. So with that, I'll say live long and prosper, and onward to Star Sighting, and don't be dubious. Mm-hmm.